to Full Dusty Jacket, a literary podcast for gentlemen. My name is Sam, and I am joined by my longtime friend, prolific reader, and co-host, Sean. How are you today? Sam, I'm doing great. Hello, everybody out there. Okay, so Sean, I decided uh, that I was going to do a little a little synergy for this podcast, a little cross-promotion, as they say in the uh, podcast business world, because on my other podcast... Um, Hidden Gems, which is a movie podcast. My co-host Steve and I are going to do the Netflix film um, The Power of the Dog. Now, I don't know if The Power of Dog is technically a hidden gem because it's like kind of a big deal on Netflix right now. But I watched the movie and I loved it so much that I wanted to talk about it on my movie podcast. And I figured what would be a better way to cross-promote everything than to also do what I think is actually a hidden gem of a novel, more appropriately, uh, The Power of the Dog, on this podcast, Full Dusty Jacket, which is why I chose it um, for this podcast. And also, I just, I really loved the movie, but I also kind of thought, because it was a novel, um, I did think that a novel could slightly not only enhance the film experience for me, but potentially answer any lingering questions about some of the vagaries in the film. Um, so I decided that we should read this book. And before I uh, summarize it, first of all, Sean, how did you like it? You know, um, it was weird. After I read it the first, you know, after I finished it, I was kind of, I had to mull it over for a long time, this book. And then it kind of hit me after a while about how much genius is baked into this book. There's a lot of subtle irony. There's a great amount of characterization. And it's kind of de very depressing in a way, but there's like a light of hope at the end. So I don't think this book is going to immediately grab a lot of readers, but if you stay with it and finish it to the end, it is you really understand that I do believe it's a hidden gem because it went unnoticed for the longest time. But we'll talk about the movie in depth later, but do you want to catch up our listeners on what Power of the Dog is actually about, Sam? Yeah, definitely, and this can basically be a summary of movie and book. Um, the Power of the Dog, I believe, takes place in, like, 1926. It's written by the author Thomas Savage. Now, Sean, correct me if I'm wrong, but Thomas Savage also wrote the novel for Brokeback Mountain, correct? I believe so. He did a lot of those uh, Western of that era. Like, he's famous for them. Like, all his books take place in, like, Montana, Wyoming, Nevada, that kind of area. So I don't think it's right. out of place. Yeah, so, and not only, it's kind of interesting. It's sort of the inverse of Brokeback Mountain. If Brokeback Mountain sort of tells how love can persevere through... Uh, not only the cold climates of the landscape, but also the cold hostility of the people who inhabit that landscape. This is kind of the opposite of that. It's not about love's perseverance or um, how man is true to himself and therefore perseveres against the hostility of others, but is in, in fact kind of what happens to an individual when society is hostile to them and to their true selves and what kind of person... Does that create, does that effect and hostility from society to that person create? Um, so just to summarize the book real quick, it takes place in Montana in the 1920s. Um, it revolves around these two very wealthy ranching brothers, um, Phil and George Burbank. Uh, and these two brothers, they own a very prosperous ranch in Montana. Phil is... Phil seems to really, honestly, have all of the attributes. They almost give George none of them. Phil is lean handsome, fiercely intelligent, 
uh, quick-witted, um, and also possibly a sadist. Uh, he's he's an extremely sadistic person. He belittles, bullies, and kind of uh, subjugates everyone in his sphere and his periphery. Meanwhile, his brother George, who he refers to as fat so often, is slow, uh, not quick with the tongue, um, not particularly intelligent, uh, a little overweight, and the only thing that George appears to have going for him as a person is kindness. I mean, that's that's really all it is. He's kind of the the opposite of Phil in that way. But before anyone gets to before anyone wants to start making the obvious uh, Abel and Cain comparisons, this is not a, an Abel and Cain story. So the entire crux of this story revolves around the fact that Phil and George, for most of their lives, have been bachelors. And one day, uh, when they're sort of out on a cattle drive, they stop by what could be considered a boarding house slash restaurant of this widower named Rose. She's about thirty-seven years old. She has a teenage son named Peter. They stop by her boarding house slash restaurant for a meal, and two things happen. The first thing that happens is that Phil notices that uh, Rose's son, Peter, who is the waiter there, is a very effeminate boy. Uh, he creates, um, like, flower arrangements um, out of, like, paper, and Phil uh, basically belittles the boy and, like, sees him as weak, even though he doesn't know him. The second thing that occurs is George gets to know Rose, falls in love with her, marries her, brings Rose back uh, to the ranch where Phil sort of kind of makes it his mission to psychologically destroy Rose um, by essentially giving her the cold shoulder, shoulder and making her feel unwelcomed in his house. The X factor here, the variable that nobody takes into account is Rose's effeminate quiet sort of steely son Peter who kind of I don't know if he's a he's a he's definitely a mystery to Rose and if he's not a mystery to Phil he is certainly uh misunderstood or underestimated by Phil but the relationship that develops between Peter and Phil is kind of I don't know if it's the crux of the story but it is the event that triggers um everything to go forward from there. Uh so yeah, that we we can get into further uh plot details in which we'll probably spoil things. So just a heads up to everybody out there. If you haven't seen the movie or read the book, I don't think there's any way we can talk about this book without spoiling it. So be warned now, either read the book and come back to the episode or watch the movie, come back to the episode, and then you can listen in to our full analysis because I think the only way to properly analyze the book is to talk about what happened. So from here on out, we're doing spoilers. Okay, Sean, uh, what was your first impressions? So you read the book, you didn't watch the movie first, and I'm just going to outright say it. Uh, so everybody, once again, spoilers starting now. My question to you, Sean, is while reading the book, at what point did you become aware that Phil was a repressed homosexual? Look, here's here's what I think. I believe that the book is genius in the way that it's subtle and open-ended. I don't immediately latch on to the fact that Phil's a closeted homosexual. It's there, like all the subtext is there, but I think it's still the story can be viewed in like a different way. Because when he's developing his relationship with Peter, the boy, the son of the widower, his initial goal is just to separate him from the mother in order to drive the mother further off the deep end. See, I think you missed a key point is 
uh, Phil not only like belittles and psychologically torments Rose at everything she tries to do, like he foils all of her plans, like he's always one step ahead of her. But he also drives her into becoming an alcoholic, which is truly tragic because up until that point in her life, she never touched a drink. But Phil so much tests her resolve that she breaks down and does like the one thing she would never want to do. But anyway, back to the whole uh, closeted homosexual angle. One of the biggest factors of this is that he, Phil, worships this character called Bronco Henry. It was like a childhood hero of his. He always tells anecdotes about Henry's uh, achievements. And in the movie, there's a huge emphasis on this. But in the book, it's just kind of like a hero worship. And towards the end, when he's developing his relationship with Peter, he, Phil, becomes a Bronco Henry and starts grooming Peter. Now, whether or not there's a sexual aspect in that, the book leaves it in a gray area, in my mind. I do not believe that it's like 100%, yes, Phil is a closeted homosexual. I believe Phil sees something in Peter that he sees in himself, and he's trying, and that's what shifts the dynamic of that relationship. So it stops being simply about, let's drive Rose further to drinking. It suddenly becomes, hey, this boy's a lot like me. Now, Sam, you watched the movie first, and I believe that the movie is as subtle as getting a hit with a brick. Uh, so <laughs> when you went back to read the novel, having that mindset of what the movie gave you, did it change your interpretation immediately from the get-go? Or were you able to kind of nudge the movie out of your mind and accept the book and the text as it was? Okay, so three things. Um, uh, because I watched the movie... There were some parts of the book that really surprised me because while I expected the book to clarify certain things, I was actually surprised what it clarified versus what was more vague actually in the book. This is what really surprised me. So the first thing that really surprised me was that you were absolutely correct. In the book, um, Phil's homose repressed homosexuality is not necessarily concrete, nor is it uh, at the center of everything and as upfront as it is in the movie. I kind of guessed at Phil's repressed homosexuality very early on in the movie. However, in the book, it's only really alluded to um, almost at the very end when uh, Peter, uh, sorry, when Peter's mom Rose throws out the cowhides. And Phil is like really like upset about this because he was going to use these cowhides to make Peter's rope. And when Peter puts his hand on Phil's hand, there's an entire passage in the book, which I do think um, pretty clearly illustrates that Phil is a repressed homosexual without explicitly stating it. I mean, I suppose you could gather from that entire passage that maybe it's just human affection that Phil longs for. However, I do think they are kind of stating that he's a repressed homosexual. Um, the second thing, so that really surprised me how long it gets to in the book before that's even stated. Um, the second thing that surprised me, or sorry, the second thing I want to comment as sort of a attack on to that is I read the afterword of this book. I don't know if your version had an afterword. Yes, it did. But mine did. And one of the things in the afterword stated how a lot of the reviews of the book at the time didn't talk about the repressed homosexuality angle, because I think the book was, like, published in the 60s. 70s. And that there was only... 
in the seventies, excuse me, but even then, still, uh, magazines would be, uh, you know, and, and newspapers might be hesitant to bring that up. But there was only one review that the person who wrote the afterwards saw, which very, very clearly states the book is about a repressed homosexual. Mm-hmm. But even this reviewer was anonymous. Like even the person who wrote this review wouldn't put their name to it because that's how touchy the subject was back then. But there is some based on this one review. There is some, you know. If it's not consensus that you know, obviously somebody thought it was very clearly about our oppressed homosexual. Um, the third thing that really interested me is because, like I said, I I kind of also read the book because I was I was interested on what the book would clarify from the movie versus what it would keep vague. And one thing that really interested me is that the book really clarifies something that the movie actually leaves vague. And what that thing is the fact is that Phil deliberately gets close to Peter towards the end of the book to destroy Rose. Um, In the movie, they change that. They make that more vague. And part of the reason is that there's a moment when Peter discovers Phil in Phil's kind of like private bathing spot, which is you have to like crawl through these... uh, these like bushes to get to so that nobody can see it. And there's like a little pond or whatever there. And this is where Phil bathes himself and kind of like thinks about Brock Henry. And in the movie, this is where he masturbates, but that's not stated uh, in the book. The movie makes it very clear because oh, there's yeah. like one scene in the movie where he's around all these shirtless, like resting men. And then he leaves them. He goes into his private spot and he masturbates, right? Like literally these guys made him horny. So he had to like get away from them quickly, find his private spot and uh, pleasure himself. However, that's not the case in the book, but in the movie, um, after Peter discovers him, the movie sort of indicates that Phil basically realizes that he's been caught, right? That Peter knows he's gay. And the movie somewhat indicates that Phil decides to get close to Peter to spark a romantic relationship with him. In the book, it's different, though. In the book, he very clearly, his first intention on getting close to Peter is to further destroy Rose. And it's only after he's begun this plan that after a certain point, um, he kind of how do I put it? There's an unintended consequence where his fake uh, affection for Peter turns real. Did you get that sense as well that, you know, at some point during his plan, if he pretended to be affectionate towards Peter, it turned real? Yes. Well, there's there's a couple of key events that happen when Phil designs the plan. So Phil is excellent at doing like crafts, like he can make anything with his hands. And so what he's doing is he's taking hides, strip of hides, and he's braiding a rope, and he decides that, like, this is going to be his plan. He's going to make the rope, take Peter under his wing, show him the ropes of how to, like, ride a horse, how to rope horses, do all the stuff that Phil enjoys, all the dirty work. And one of the first events is that um, Peter has been uh, wearing, like, the wrong clothes. He's got, like, white tennis shoes and baggy jeans that you're supposed to soak so they fit, you know, tight or whatever. And Phil has been talking to all of his ranch hands, saying, like, look at this little sissy and all that. So when Peter visits a camp uh, and walks by the ranch hands' tents, they all whistle. They catcall him. And he doesn't, doesn't flinch, doesn't do anything. He walks to where he wants to go. I believe he's looking at a magpie nest. And then he walks back, and everybody's silent. So Phil respects Peter, or gained some respect for Peter, because... It didn't shake Peter. He thought that would like break the boy down. The next and yeah, possi- and this 
Oh, sorry. I was going to say that's important to note. Um, sorry to interrupt you. No, no problem. But because, and this has been a large uh, dialogue in, about the movie as well, but um, during you know the book um, and the movie, uh, and maybe this has honestly been discoursed too much because of the year 2020 and 2021 about toxic masculinity and all oh, that. Oh boy, here we but go. The, <laughs> right, right. So I don't, I don't want to go too far into it. Uh, but I, but the book is very making is making one thing clear, which is that Phil um, is definitely putting on an act. Right, Phil is trying to be the ultimate man's man. In fact, that is partly what Bronco Henry represents to him. Although Bronco Henry might very well have been Phil's lover, but mm-hmm. he was still a manly man. I don't see any reason why you can't be homosexual and also be manly. But for him, he's definitely putting on this act where not only is he trying to be the manliest rancher around, but he's trying to dominate the world, lest it dominate him. Um, I think nothing, nothing um, annoys Phil worse than weakness so when he sees peter someone he initially thought to be very weak uh in the traditional flamboyant effeminate gay way just not a manly kid but when he sees peter walk across all those ranchers whistling at him and jeering at him and then he even says to himself well there's another way for peter to get back which would take him behind the ranchers which Mm -hmm. he expects him to do but instead when peter walks across from them again Phil makes a calculation that is both accurate and also inaccurate. The accurate calculation is that Peter, like you said, does have strength, right? There's something to his this kid that he didn't see before, which is that Peter does have strength. Now, keep in mind, the very thing he kind of sees is the very thing that uh, has worried Rose about Peter. Um, in this book, Rose often thinks that Peter is kind of too strong in a way, that he that there's something inside of him that is impenetrable in a way that might make him cold or distant. But the thing that uh, Phil doesn't understand about Peter, because when Phil sees this strength in Peter, he says to himself, okay, let me turn Peter into a man because I think it's possible. But the thing he doesn't see is that Peter doesn't give a shit. Peter is totally comfortable with who he is. And as a result, there's no transformation needed. Right. There's no mm-hmm. it's not that like, oh, he's got some strength and can already become stronger. I think the key misinterpretation here is that at that very moment, Peter is already stronger than Phil. And this is what Phil doesn't see. And this is what eventually will be Phil's doom. Um, sorry, I wanted to get that to me, the sort of the act that Phil puts on. It's not as important as everyone's making it out to be in the dialogue and the discourse regarding the movie. But it is there. Right. It, it, it's not. It's not, oh, yeah, totally. it's, not totally, it's not totally not drawn out in the book, but at the same time in the book, it's not saying that it's totally an act. Um, even, you know, this is important, um, Phil's parents in the book think something's wrong with him. They actually talk about it in the book, like what's wrong with Phil. But they don't necessarily state that, oh, it's because he's a homosexual. It might just be that he's too cruel. You know, because mm-hmm. everyone else in the family seems to be nice. Um, you don't really get the sense of what they're saying, what is wrong with him. Um, it could be that they think he's gay. It could also be, in my opinion, that they think that there's something wrong with his um, his vicious ways, like his, his vicious personality. Yeah, well, let me just take that ball and run with it. So the whole, if people are talking about that, you know, it feels like it's all an act. Well, it's totally psychologically possible that at one point, the act, the gimmick that Phil was putting on actually took over Phil. Like Phil at this point in his life, he's about 40 years old, is so far gone down that road that 
he is silently ashamed of a certain part of himself that he immediately barks at people and doesn't give them a chance. He keeps them at arm's length. He does everything he can. He doesn't wash himself often. He doesn't get his hair cut. He refuses to wear gloves, which is very important. And he gets his hands all cut up and scarred. He's always putting this barrier to prevent other people from getting close to him because if they get close to him, they'll see the part of him that he is always trying to hide. And this is a part thematically of the book where things are hidden and only certain people can see them. So when Peter is talking with Phil and they're doing something in like uh, Phil's makeshift blacksmith, they go to the end of the barn and he points at this ridge of hills and he says to Peter, what do you see out there? And Peter goes, I see a running dog. And Phil is taken aback because his entire life, he was the only person that was able to see this, the power of the dog out in the hills. Nobody else saw it except for Phil. So thematically, seeing things that are there underneath the surface is kind of an important theme. And that means Peter is able to see through Phil's act. He sees through and sees the chink in uh, Phil's armor, and he's able to exploit it you know, in a very subtle way. He does understand that, I do believe he understands that Phil is a homosexual or might be trying to make, you know, groom him to make a, a pass at him or whatever. But in the movie, it's just right over your head. Like, especially because before Peter catches Phil bathing, he goes into a secret clubhouse Phil and George had when they were a kid. And he opens up this box and it's just like naked men posing. And it's like supposedly for like bodybuilders or whatever. And I was just like, man, whoever directed this just thought the audience was so dumb or wanted to hit everybody over the head and say, like, feels definitely homosexual. This is this is how you interpret the story that made me angry about the movie, that it lost all sense of subtlety. Um, Were there any other changes you noticed in the movie, Sam, that you felt were, you know, either made because they're making a movie or were beneficial yeah, so for before I get to that, because there's a huge thing in the book that is not in the movie, um, I did want to say that basically there is a common understanding between Peter and Phil from the moment, uh, not only not only from when they meet, but especially after Peter discovers Phil in his private place, even in the book, which is that they're both gay, right? That is the common understanding. However... Like I said before, the big difference is Phil's misinterpretation of how to use that common uh, understanding versus Peter's very correct uh, interpretation on how to use it. So Phil thinks, okay, I know the boy's gay. The boy knows I'm gay. I do a much better job in society passing off as a straight man. And this boy will probably want or need me as his role model to also pass off as a straight manly man, and therefore I will have a way of getting close to the boy, destroying his mother, right? Because he assumes the boy will look up to him. He assumes Peter will look up to Phil as a way to hide the gayness. This is not correct. And what Peter, uh, and here's where I'm going to get into big spoilers, what Peter sees is actually correct, which is that because he knows Phil is a gay 
uh, as a repressed homosexual, and then because he knows Phil knows that he's gay, he will use that homosexual link uh, to actually, you know, Phil thinks he's drawing Peter in, but in fact, Peter is drawing Phil in. He's mm-hmm. gaining Phil's trust, and what he's going to end up doing is uh, murdering Phil, and he's going to murder Phil to protect his mother because he knows that Phil's trying to destroy his mother. So that's that's the really important thing here is that they both have a common understanding, but their interpretations on how to use that understanding fills is incorrect while Peter's is correct, right? It, it's kind of this weird this weird ban- dancer battle, but only one of them will come out on top in the end, and it turns out to be Peter. Um, in regards to your question about the changes from the book to the movie, the biggest change has to be uh, the story of um, Peter's father. Um, a really key event happens in this book, which is that Peter's father is this very kind but sort of weak-willed surgeon who, for whatever reasons, is just not succeeding in life. You could take it to be his kindness or his weakness, and eventually he actually one day goes to a bar and he has a run-in with who turns out to be Phil, like a group of ranchers. And Phil berates and then actually physically beats Peter's father. This is years ago, and this incident, this encounter drives Peter's dad, I think his name was John, Mm -hmm. uh, into alcoholism and then eventual suicide. Part of the reason Rose doesn't drink is because her husband committed suicide due to alcoholism. But the incident that kind of... precipitates this this decline into alcoholism is is an encounter with Phil in which Phil uh, verbally and also physically uh, dominates and beats down uh, Peter's dad. Now, I think it's entirely appropriate that the movie should cut this out. It has no yeah, place the in the movie. the movie's already like two hours. I think you yeah, put that in would it, add like another half hour, which is movieizing books. But in in terms of pure plot, I mean, this only... This only adds to uh to Peter's vengeance. You know, he doesn't even know. I, he has no idea that, you know, his father and Phil had this encounter, but it only further uh uh cements the sense of justice that the reader should get for Phil's eventual fate at uh Peter's planning. Um Wait, the other you know, thing I, be bo- I thought real quick, I yeah. the movie does acknowledge the whole uh John and Phil storyline because when? Uh, John is an already an alcoholic before he encounters Phil. And when Phil beats him, John goes back to his house. He tells his son that he loves him. He tells Peter he loves him for, I think it's mentioned in the book, it's like the first time he ever did it. And then he goes and in the boarding house, all the, flo- all the bedrooms on the second floor have a rope that you can throw out the window in case there's a fire. And what John does is hang himself using one of these ropes. Peter is actually the person to discover his father's dead body. In the movie, when they're staying at the same uh, boarding house, there's a shot in the movie where Phil glances and it shows the rope. It's the slightest nod, but I was like, well, you know what? At least that means somebody read the source material and wanted to put that little detail in there. Uh, The other thing, the point is, I don't believe that Peter's gay. I think, if anything, that he's asexual. Interesting. He just grew up so close to his mother and had such an affection for that uh, his mother was good at arranging flowers, so in order to please his mother, he started making paper flowers. But otherwise, Peter's like a cold badass. At one point, when he's staying at the ranch house, he's catching all sorts of animals, from like gophers to rabbits, 
and he's found dissecting them in his room. And that's just like stone cold, like I don't care about anything. So I believe that Phil, when he lures Peter in, Peter, I believe Peter, since he's such a smart kid, I believe Peter knows from the jump that Phil was responsible for his father hanging himself. And he wants revenge, but he doesn't have an angle at the beginning. But then when Peter, uh, Phil starts making the rope, that's when Phil goes into like cold, calculating, methodical. Because what's the method that he uses to kill Peter, Sam? Or kill Phil, Sam? Peter uh, gets a diseased cowhide that has anthrax in it, and he gives it... So this is actually the part of the movie in the book I don't like in a weird way because it requires too many random events to occur uh, to happen. Um, But basically, Phil cuts his hand um, pretty deeply, and then after he cuts his hand... um, Rose's mom gives away all the cowhides uh, that P- that Phil was going to use to make Peter the rope. And then, as a result, Peter is able to give Phil a diseased anthrax cowhide uh, that he found that Phil doesn't know has anthrax, that Phil is going to braid that night, get the anthrax into his open wound, and then die of it. Uh, so there's your spoiler. Yeah. The thing I don't like about that plot hole is a it requires phil to cut his hand and it requires rose to give away the cowhides like if neither of those two events occur then how is peter taking out phil but before you answer that question sean Mm -hmm. we'll get back Mm -hmm. to it i want to agree with you and also disagree with you the thing i agree with and i don't necessarily agree with it but i think you're right in the fact that it could very well be that peter's not gay it could mm-hmm. very well be that Peter is just this stone-cold, impenetrable mystery kid, right, who's smart enough to use Phil's repressed homosexuality against him. That could be absolutely true. And in fact, my thinking he's gay, and maybe everyone else's thinking that he's gay, is only further proof of the sort of... Uh, of the kind of um, masculine and feminine norms and roles that we're all accustomed to. So if we see an effeminate kid, we just automatically assume they're homosexual, which could be completely Mm -hmm. false. The thing I disagree with you on is that I do not think Peter knows that Phil uh, is the guy who had an encounter with his dad and drove him to alcoholism and then eventually suicide. Well, remember, remember, John makes it explicitly clear. I think the book makes it explicitly clear that everything Peter is doing is in service to rescue his mother. Yeah. I mean, well, okay. So back to the part about what you were saying with the, the plot having so many random variables. So in the book, there's a part where Phil is telling Peter about how he found a trail. He thinks it was a part of the Lewis and Clark expedition. So when Peter finally knows how to ride a horse properly, he goes down on this trail and he actively is looking for a cow that has has been killed by anthrax. So that's mm-hmm. point A, that he, he has this plan in his head. And then when Phil and Peter go off on their own, to they're putting fences around giant piles of hay, I guess to keep you know uh, the grazers out of it. And back at home, Rose is, of course, by now a full-blown alcoholic. She's hiding bottles of liquor everywhere. She's watered down George's whiskey. Um, And what happens is that Phil refuses to sell the hides to anybody, especially Jewish people. Because yeah, right. <laughs> Another yeah. change from the movie, by the way. Well, the movies, and, and you know what? It was actually smart what they did in the movies. So well, sorry we'll to talk. Cut you we'll off. talk about that. Yeah, in just okay. a second. Yeah, because um, yeah. it's very important that 
Phil, he doesn't like the Jewish people that go around buying hides for, you know, a dollar and then turning around and selling them for $3 because one of the most successful people in the nearby town is a Jewish merchant who originally went by Greenberg. And Phil remembered seeing Greenberg, you know, going around with the horses and everything and trying to buy, you know, scraps and stuff to sell them up. And eventually he became very wealthy. He marries a Christian woman. He has a daughter buyer. And he changes his last name to Green. Now, that to me sparks why Phil is so antagonistic to anybody that is putting on airs that are trying to be something that they're not. Because he's, if he's a repressed homosexual and he hates that about himself, then he hates anybody else that is like pretending to be something else. You see where I'm going with that? No, but how does that get to Peter's plan? See, we're okay, ta- well, anyway, talking about yeah, yeah. So Rose, when Peter and Phil are you know away, uh, the Jewish hide traders come in, and she immediately offers to sell them, and she asks for money because at this point she her allowance isn't covering her liquor cost, and what happens is she gets uh, thirty bucks, I believe, for the hides in like three ten dollar bills. And after she makes the transaction, she collapses, exhausted on the bed with like the three crumpled dollar bills. So she's passed out drunk in the middle of the afternoon with money that came from somewhere. And George is the one that finds her. But George is far too kind to even like begin to accuse Rose of being alcoholic. He tells Phil like she's just sick. So when Peter and Phil come back and the hides are gone in the book, Peter thinks to himself, he's like, Oh, that's great. That means I don't have to get rid of the hides. It just happened to be a moment of right. serendipity. So that, I'm glad you said that, Sean, because in the book, the phrase actually goes something like this, which is that um, Peter's mother had carried out the planning that Peter was supposed to do. Yeah, so that clarifies yeah. that for me. That clarifies that for me. I didn't understand what that meant when I was reading it, but now I understand that Peter was always planning on doing away with those hides in some way so mm-hmm. that he could give Phil the diseased hide. However, the other thing he would kind of need is Phil to get a cut. Well, that's or the other thing. Needed. Remember, it's emphasized yeah. over and over again that Phil never wears gloves. He's proud, and right. he's always doing rough labor with his hands, so him getting a cut is almost inevitable. It just, right. you know, it just happens and Peter's able to capitalize on it. Um, and they also do say at the end of the book that anthrax will make its way into like the human system if it's touched. Like, yeah, if the the open of the book wound. When they're talking about anthrax. Did, did they even say an open wound in the book? Yeah, yeah. It is because the doc- there's a, a fuller scene with the doctor explaining it where it's, he's like, oh, well. The results came back. It's anthrax. And, it, and he's like, was Phil working with anything that was diseased? And he had like a cut open on his hand. And, you know, George mm-hmm. is like, oh, no, we never deal with diseased animals. So I, I think it's clear in the book that that's exactly how Peter, you know, murdered him, that he waited for him to get a cut. OK, so one thing I wanted to say about the movie before we start really talking about the book in depth is um, the movie does something smart, which is there's a whole section of the book where they talk about this young Indian boy and his father who live on the reservation. His father should have been the chief or was the chief. 
Um, and they and they sort of go into this as an aside, just about these random characters. And in the movie, what they decide to do is instead of using Jews uh, to be the people that Phil won't sell to and that Rose ends up selling the hides to, they make it the Indians, the Indians who come on the land, and it's the Indians who Phil won't sell to. And I'm fine with that. I think that was a, a wise oh, decision yeah. from the movie to con- to add that element from the book and also consolidate it and not have too many you know dispersing parts from the book just floating around the movie. Now I want to put the movie aside a little bit. Wait, hold on. And there's, talk about the book. There's one thing oh, I think please. the movie that does is clever. Is that okay? In the story, in the book, the the father and son, the mother actually makes these handmade gloves, and she, there's she hides away like a box of them that the father finds, and he's like, oh, "Okay, in case mm-hmm. I get into trouble, I can always sell these for money." In the movie, they have the gloves, and he gives a pair of gloves to Rose as payment for the hides. And then I I do like that, and it, it makes it more dramatic. Rose actually, like, puts the gloves on and collapses, and I think that's great symmetrical storytelling because Rose is the victim, and she puts gloves on, and Phil is yeah. the assailant, and he refuses to wear gloves. So I thought that was a nice little... That's a nice adaptation of how you do things visually. But Sam... Also, something... Ahead. something sorry, one second. Something extremely different about the book and the movie, which also really surprised me. In the movie, my, ma- my main critic... I actually really like the movie, Sean. I mm-hmm. really like it. Um, but my main criticism of the movie is that Rose's descent into alcoholism is swift and very on the nose, like very in your face. It's mm-hmm. like Kirsten Dunst, bless her heart, is doing like a very one-note, uh, kind of impression of a drunk woman because she's just not given that time to descend into alcoholism. However, in the book, the thing that really surprised me is I had, you, for me personally, I got no sense that she was an alcoholic at the house, at the ranch, until she literally confronts Phil and asks him why uh, he doesn't like her. And he says to her, um, because you're a cheap schemer and you're getting into George's booze. And mm-hmm. up until that point, even though I knew in the movie she was getting into the booze, I was literally reading the book like wondering, when is she going to get into the booze? And it's only at that point where A, it's been established she's already been getting into the booze, and B, that they kind of talk about it a little more going forward. Um, so even though in the book, in its own way, it's also very sudden and upfront uh, in his... In his um, in his statement that she's been getting to the booze, you don't see it as much as you do in the movie. Yeah. Uh, I mean, in the book, it, it does give it that time to accelerate into an actual realistic drinking problem where she starts getting migraines whenever Phil's around uh, because he's antagonized her enough and torments and terrorizes her that she's getting these constant migraines. So she starts off slowly taking like a gulp of whiskey here and there to kind of quell the migraine pain. But eventually, she's watering down the bottles because she's, she has to replace the whiskey she's drinking. But the important part to me is, and having been so close to alcoholism myself, is that the second she started hiding bottles, that is your 100% telltale sign. Like, already drinking secretly is bad enough, but when she's hiding things, that's when it's like, oh, I, that's when I was like, oh boy, that's, this is a big yikes coming up. In the movie, that I think they kind of do it because they show that one day she obviously has a hangover and Peter comes to talk to her and he notices tucked under her pillow is a bottle of whiskey. So I think mm-hmm. the movie does do a little bit better. And the thing that I don't like about the movie when it tells the story is that she's hiding bottles in this like 
nook in the house, like an alley, like full of like um, cast off furniture. She has a bottle in there. And as she's going to get a drink, Phil is watching her from an upstairs window and he starts whistling the song that she was supposed to play at a dinner party, but she couldn't. And then it's just like, oh, okay, Phil definitely knows. I think in the book it's handled a little bit better because Rose is always worried that Phil is going to catch her, but he doesn't ever outright see her in, you know, in the act. So in the book, when he's just like, he's like, yeah, you're a schemer and you're getting to George's booze. It's so appropriate because of course you can't get anything by Phil. Phil is watching her like a hawk 24 seven. He would, it would be completely ridiculous if he didn't know. So I think the movie, once again, has to definitely show you that Phil knows that Rose is drinking. That's the one thing I didn't like about the movie. It's just because they took all the subtlety out of nearly every aspect of the movie. But uh, Sam, what do you think that... Did you see anything that you thought detracted in the adaptation of the movie? I think this will be the last thing we can talk about with the movie. No, I, I thought the movie worked uh, as a movie. I kind of described it to my friends as like a B-plus version of There Will Be Blood. Um, the, mm-hmm. One of the most obvious similarities being uh, that Johnny Greenwood scored both the films. Um, you know, I, th- I think the thing is that like a book has the has the ability to get into the inner uh, thoughts, the inner thoughts of characters, so they don't have to do things outwardly that are as uh, as obvious because the book is allowed to tell you their thoughts. Versus this movie, everything I thought Benedict Cumberbatch was great in the movie, but everything he's doing in this movie is on his face to let you know this guy's putting on an act, right? That, like, mm-hmm. that you know, every single emotion that guy has in the movie is all over his face. Um, yeah. So, you know, yeah. mov- movies are always going to seem more obvious than their book counterparts. Um, one thing I wanted to talk about is the author Thomas Savage. This guy has written two novels about gay men in the American West. Uh, Thomas Savage himself, it's really interesting came out i believe in the 50s but he was married um he was married to a woman who by the way also knew that he was gay i don't really understand it i was reading his wikipedia and it's just kind of being like yeah he came out later but his wife also knew he was gay which is just a little weird um well i think it's an attempt to normalize it like if you know, they get married, you know, they get the tax benefits and they both look like married people. And that will, you know, for most people at the time, like you said, it was in the 50s. If uh, Savage was married to a woman, that definitely would kind of shake away any rumors or suspicion that he was gay. Right. So you just you marry a woman. I think it's called like a beard in the gay community. Yeah. If you're like a, a gay guy, and you're, you're like pretend to be in a relationship with a woman just so it doesn't appear you're outwardly gay. So I can see so that. So here's, here, here's the passage. It says, While married, Savage had several long-term and close relationships with men only after he began slowly coming out in the late 1950s. His wife was aware of his homosexuality before they married. Uh, late in life, he told his daughter he should not be characterized as bisexual. Um, just really interesting. Um, let's talk about the book a little bit. So yeah. It's kind of funny. My favorite book that you and I have read in the entire course of this podcast was A Hard Rain Falling. 
And I think it's undeniable to see some similarities between the two books because they both take place in settings of hardened of hardened men, right? Mm-hmm. But they both center around largely homosexual characters. Um, and not only that, but both these books, in my opinion, the writing style is really similar, which it's very direct. There's a poetry to it, but it's not a it's not a poetry of diction, right? It's not like the language is not flowery. Uh, yeah, it's, it's not just purple. Very, I is purple the word? Uh, yeah, purple prose is when you're being overly flowery. Flowery, you're trying. I had no idea. I, hard. I like, I like that a lot. Um, but they're both direct, and they and they deal with men sort of coming to grips with who they are as people in a hard world. And I gotta tell you, reading a book that so plainly stated after we just did Thomas Pynchon mm-hmm. uh, was a delight. Oh yeah, um, yeah. Because because that book I was, you know, struggling to basically here's what I wanted to ask you, Sean, as yeah. a because you know, and, and, and this is this is an interesting sort of this won't be as about the book as much, but will be about craft in general. So Sean, when I watch movies, um I'm generally not paying attention to what's gonna happen next. Like I'm not plot centric. Uh what I'm doing is I'm trying to take in every single thing that's going on in the scene from the music and the lighting and the composition and really at the end of the day the director's intent like what does he intend for me or or she what does the director intend for me to feel during this scene and while that might sound pretentious or it does sound pretentious the reason I'm able to do this is I've seen so many movies in my life that it's easy enough to predict what's going to happen next to the point where it doesn't even matter for you. And instead, what you're able to see is the craft. And once you're able to see the craft, the movie is able to have a larger effect on you. However, when it comes to literature, um, especially fiction, I'm not as aware of the craft. I'm, I'm not as adept at picking up what the author is potentially intending me to feel simply by word choice, right? So mm-hmm. you love Pynchon because you read so often that you can see the mastery in his craft. However, for someone like me, I watch, I read books in very much the opposite way in which I watch movies, which is because I'm less practiced or less knowledgeable about the medium. I'm very plot centric. I'm very, you know, what's going to happen next. And it does have to grab me somewhat. And, you know, the plot has to be moving forward enough for me to be entertained, which in a way with movies, I wouldn't be. So when I read something like this, my first sort of thought is, is this actually, would Sean consider this to be well-written? Um, I believe you were right in comparing it to Hard Rate Falling because to me, there's like three types, three main types of writing that I know. I'm not like a grammarian. I can't explain what syntax. No, means. you're just well read. No, I, yeah. I mean, you're just well read. It's like the judge when he decided a ruling on pornography. I know it when I see it. You know, I can't just <laughs> tell you exactly what it is, but like it'll hit differently. So there's A, there's like the obviously poor written or amateurly written stuff that's like kind mm-hmm. of that's kind of sloppy or, you know, overwritten in places. Then there's B, which I believe that uh, Power of the Dog falls into, where it's very, very competent, but it lacks something like special or uh, like kind of like uh, uh, something that. Makes it Would you endearing. say genius, for lack of a better word? Would you say genius? No. Well, here's... Originality? I, I wrote a review of it on Goodreads, and the way I put it was, when I was living in Florida, and I was working at a restaurant, there was a girl. She was very pretty, 
And she had went and auditioned to go be one of the Disney princesses. And she got turned down because they explained to her, the casting person was like, well, you're obviously a pretty girl, but her face was like not symmetrical enough. Like her features stand out because like, if you think of like Cinderella, right, you know what Cinderella looks like. You have an idea of what she looks like. So when you see a person that's walking around as Cinderella, like it can't, she can't have red hair. She can't have freckles. You know, if Gaston walks around, he's got a giant mole on the side of his face. It ruins it. So Disney has to hire these plain, like scientifically attractive people without blemishes (laughs) or marks. And a lot of books fall into that category for me that they're just so they're just they're good to read. It's smooth all the way, but it lacks that little it lacks like the freckles or the snaggle tooth, like the little imperfections and the little <laughs> the little bit of the author that comes through. With Pynchon, it's all over the place. You know his sense of humor almost immediately. The way he plays with words freely and it doesn't ruin the reading experience. It can make it a little bit confusing. But he, the way he tells the story is is way more freeform. It's way more of Pynchon. When I read Savage's novel, I didn't get Savage's personality in it to me it was just very straightforward he had a good idea for a book that resonated with him obviously if he was a homosexual for you know a closet homosexual for a duration of his life he knew how to write phil and he wrote the hell out of phil all of these characters are great and the little bits of poetry that pop up rise it above kind of like the morass of other books of the Mm -hmm. nature but it doesn't it doesn't sing to me but when you look back, at so the story, so it's interesting. It's interesting you said sing. Sorry to cut you off. No, but no. I, I wanted to. I I wanted to point this out. So, when I think of like literature, right, or I think of the the author, the novelist, um, especially amongst like literary review, like the liter the literati, right, the mm-hmm. uh, the literature, like the critical review literature circle. Um, I think of guys as like Pynchon, and who's the dude that committed suicide and wrote that massive book where he's like a professor, and they made a movie about uh, it called The David, Last Tour. What's that guy's name? David Foster Wallace. Dave. So I think of like David Foster Wallace, Thomas Pynchon, the guy who wrote Why Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. What's his name? Philip K. Dick. Philip K. Dick, the guy who wrote Slaughterhouse Five. What's his name? Kurt Vonnegut. You're talking about a Kurt lot Vonnegut. of like postmodern kind of writers that were more right. experimental so, because they were building off books like Power of the Dog. Power of the Dog is a finely written novel. The postmodern right. So here's my I, point. Go ahead. Here's, here, Before here, I go into my like point. my... Like, yeah, yeah, go ahead. No, but, you, but you're sort of right. But my point is this. I think the really celebrated authors of the 20th century, people are looking for their personalities the same way that people um, look for the personalities of singer-songwriters, right? I think that that the author, the rock star author of the 20th century, has far more in common with the actual rock star, right, the actual musician, than they do with the film director. I think that film directors, nobody tends to look at their personalities as dynamic. Usually film directors are kind of seen as like the Steven Spielberg type, like just sort of like, the quiet craftsman, maybe, you know, solitary figure or just like, like not necessarily a dynamic personality or even the tortured artist. I don't think that uh, filmmakers are looked at that way. So you see a book like this, The Power of the Dog, that's a competently told story. 
And I think when it comes to movies and filmmaking, we look at competently told stories as kind of the pinnacle of the medium, right? That's basically all we're looking for. We're not necessarily looking for... When we watch The Godfather, we're not thinking about what is Francis Ford Coppola like. We're Mm -hmm. just looking at, you know, the work itself and how does it affect us. But I think that in the literary uh, circles, it's very much the same as the musical circles, which is you cannot distinguish the work from the creator that they're basically one in the same and if it's really and the work they like the most i think in some ways uh uh displays who the creator is the most and i was talking to a friend of mine named ben and he's an aspiring writer um and i was asking him like you know what are the books that actually get published these days and he's like all the books that everyone's looking for are based on personal experience in some way. Like, even if they're fictional, like, it's a book about, like, what what is it like to grow up as an American Indian in Arizona? Or what is it like to grow up a gay Dutchman in Minnesota? Like, but it's all about, like, it wants to reflect the author. So that's why I thought it was interesting when you said this book doesn't sing to you. Because I do think that in many ways, for people who read a lot, what they're also looking for is a kind of personal statement from the author that maybe a book like this on the surface isn't. Yeah. I mean, I think that the statement is completely baked into the character of Phil. Like, it's mm-hmm. it's driven probably, it's of course, it's driven to extremes to accentuate, you know, the plot, that Phil's personality. But if the author's voice is being heard, it's being, it's way... It's in uh, service to the story. You know, he just wants the story to come across. And it's very clean, and you can kind of interpret it your own way. The author doesn't really... He leaves the breadcrumb trail, but it leads to, like, nowhere. Like, you have to figure out where it goes, you know, after there. Um, I think it's interesting that the... The writing, the way the writing is, it's because it's very clever. John's father hangs himself with a rope. How does Peter end up murdering Phil? By making him make a rope. By making yeah, him right. <laughs> make something that killed Peter's father. It's so perfect. That's why I kind of didn't like that the movie didn't even bother. I mean, if the movie started with Peter discovering Phil's body... You just quickly get that out of the way, and then you flash forward. Yeah. I think that could. Oh, you have mean been Peter done. discovering John's body? You oh yeah, Peter yeah. Discovering John's yeah, body. absolutely. Yeah. Sorry, I misspoke. But yeah, I think you could have started the movie that way. That's a dramatic, you know, pop intro sets the tone of the movie. Uh, so, eh, that's just me uh, Sunday morning quarterback directing. But I like what you said <laughs> about I- how, like, a director like Spielberg kind of melts away. He's not like an auteur like Tarantino who has quirks mm-hmm. and specific things. Like if you if you showed me any of Tarantino's movies and I was the slightest bit familiar with it, I'd be like, oh, yeah, that, that's Tarantino. But you know what? Yeah. If I wasn't told who directed it, if somebody showed me Ready Player One, I couldn't tell you who directed that movie. I wouldn't. Yeah. I wouldn't Tarantino's have a more singular. Exactly. Tarantino is sort of the counter argument to me. Um, and I think it's a good one, but I think there are less Tarantinos out there and more Stanley Kubricks in the sense that in terms of personality, like the, the more, um, 
the director you don't think about their personality when you're watching the film. I think I think some Tarantino is very much the rock star style of director, right? But mm-hmm. I think they're less common. Even among celebrated directors, I think they're less common. Yeah. I think the vast majority of celebrated directors are just working craftsmen and that it's very rare to have a director like Tarantino where if you see the movie, you either say, A, that's a Tarantino movie, or B, if you see another movie, you say, oh, that person is trying to be like Tarantino. Yeah, I mean, and I do believe that has a responsibility for the, I would say, overall general decline of excellent movies. There's still good movies, and there's still excellent movies that crop up. But nowadays, when you make a movie, there's so many people involved. Have you ever heard the phrase of, uh, like, a camel by committee? Where, like, a camel was a horse, or, like, an animal designed by a group of people? All these yeah. movies that get made that they spend millions of dollars on, they want they treat it as an investment. They want their money back. So they But that's because of money. I mean, exactly. now we're getting far away from the book, but but that actually is because of Star Wars where the idea it used to be and this is going to be a side tangent I'll get on for like 1 minute and then yeah. I'll get off of it. Uh, but basically before Star Wars a studio, or not even a studio, financiers would maybe pay $5 million to make a movie, and the movie, if it was successful, made $20 million. You made $15 million profit. You didn't risk a lot. You didn't make a lot, but you did good. And as a result, because the risk of the investment was so low, the director had more autonomy in making the film. But after Star Wars, the idea was if you put $100 million into a movie and you make $400 million back, that's mu- the, the profit is worth the risk of the investment. However, the risk of the investment causes all the financiers years to get involved with the picture and as a result the director has less autonomy than the people who finance the film yeah i want to get away from that though because that's for another podcast (laughs) yeah but that always points to me that's why i love the books more than the movies the book is a straightforward one-on-one the author Mm -hmm. wrote this it might have been edited but you know that you're getting as close to the author telling the story as possible when you look at any job adaptation that's like a dozen people making the story for you that they all pitched in the person designing the costumes, the person that cast Mm -hmm. the actors, the person that makes the music. It's, I believe it's so far gone from the original experience. That's why I always say, read the book first. (laughs) You did, you did an excellent job making that connect. I really didn't see where we were going with that. Uh, I was a little concerned. I was like, well, now we're just talking about the movie business. So I have to give you kudos for bringing that back around because I was concerned that, you know, where are we going with this whole like how movies are made? And then you did, you you made it full circle. You really, I just, I didn't have enough faith in you, Sean, uh, on that one in terms of just podcast hosting. Oh, Um, well, thank you very much. (laughs) The thing I wanted to say about this book too is that one thing I think the book does really well is take small moments to illustrate what a character is like. And my favorite scene of the book is actually around George, who we've kind of given short shift shrift to in this in this uh, in this podcast. But George, who's kind of like the quiet, you know, dim-witted, slightly like abused brother of Phil, there's a scene in which George is at college and he's basically not doing well. He's not really a social guy, but he is a rich man's son, and he expects to be uh, invited to take part in this fraternity that you know, all the rich men's sons will sort of, you know, it's just expected that they'll be invited to to join this fraternity. However, Phil, who was uh, invited to this fraternity before uh, jo- before George, uh, when he was at college, because Phil's a little bit older, basically told the fraternity, go fuck themselves. Uh, George doesn't know this. So George is in his room one day, and he's hearing the knocks on all the dorm rooms 
from the people at the fraternity inviting these young men to come to the fraternity like later that evening and George is like all dressed up in like his like evening wear prepared for this uh for this invitation and it just never comes and he just like sits there and then he's like okay and he changes out of his his evening wear and into his pajamas and just goes to bed and it's so sad and you have so much empathy for this character because he did nothing to deserve this it's pretty much at like possibly the whims of his brother's like uh derelict personality but at the same time he doesn't have a dynamic enough personality himself to prevent it and that seems to be George's life story until he meets Rose which is that he is just the victim of Phil's personality both directly and indirectly and I thought that one scene is probably my favorite scene in the book because it just so perfectly illustrates what type of person George is and what his life is like and I think the book has lots of moments like that specifically with the American Indian boy or the the uh the cook at the ranch and they talk about like her husband like the book does a great job, very much in the way Francis Ford Coppola did in uh, The Godfather. Or sorry, not Coppola, excuse me. Who wrote The Godfather? Puzo. Yeah, very Mario much in Puzo. the way that Puzo would sum up an entire character's like life in one paragraph to a page. I think this movie, or sorry, this book also does well. Yeah, and I'm, we did get uh, George not a fair shake. George is kind of the yin to Phil's yang. He's very much like an Eeyore character, but George yeah. himself... He has powers, too. I mean... He does. If Phil is the one doing all the dirty work with his hands, George is the one that's steering the ship. He does all the paperwork. He's the one that makes sure the the clock is always telling the right time. That's George. He just quietly and unassumingly goes about his business. The one scene And not just that. I was going to say not just that, but when you said superpowers, one thing the book remarks in is that George, and by the way, the movie does a good job on picking up on this. They say George has a way of leaving a man's, like, of basically exposing a man's inner truth by saying nothing. They're like, basically, George has this way of interacting with people where if there's something you're trying to conceal or hide or have any kind of inner guilt, there's something about George's silences which make your, like, inner anguish uh, more apparent. And I think the movie actually illustrates that. Sam, you just allied. I'm about to oop on you. So oh there's actually a passage that I noted when on reading, uh, and it's about uh, George trying to have a conversation with Phil. So uh, mm-hmm. it goes, if um, the ranch hands, this is parentheses, they still, they weren't comfortable in the bunkhouse if George was abroad. He had a queer authority without even knowing it, an ability to upset you, maybe because he so seldom opened his talker and his silence made you look in upon yourself on the guilt you always knew was there. So That's the passage. Yeah. yeah. That's the passage. And it beautifully highlights that Phil, he is a force of nature. His presence is commanding. George is a solid, you know, uh, uh, just always there. But when he's missing, that's when his power is felt. It makes you ruminate on yourself that you don't have George and his kindness and his forgivingness. Like he let, like you were saying, that Phil, when he was at college, he went and let all the fraternities wine and dine him because they wanted to have him in their fraternity because he was rich. He had a family name. However, he, because Phil hates everybody, he went to like the final dinner and then stood up and announces like, None of you took the time to get to know me. I know exactly what you are. You're a bunch of schemers. And he walks off. 
And I believe yes, that's, fantastic. that's what sinks George's ability. They didn't want George to be another Phil. So George's personality, it, the way it grows, it grew naturally that he would be the silence to counter Phil's raging storm. But he would accept yeah. him. And I think it's touching. One of the most touching moments for me about Phil is when Phil goes to bed one night, he's restless because George hasn't returned home. They have like a ritual that they, you know, they talk a bit before they go to sleep. They've been together for so long and the relationship has gotten so close. It's actually kind of touching that that's one of the early scenes where you realize that Phil is not a one-dimensional character. He has another depth to him. He has such a love for his brother that I, I thought that was great. That really, in my well, mind, let me counter that a little bit, Sean. Go ahead. Let me counter that a little bit. It's not he does love his brother, but I also I think the movie also does a good job of making this clear. Phil needs his brother more than George needs Phil, and the reason is that George is George, like having a brother is going to be the only close relationship Phil is going to be able to have in life because Phil cannot get married because Phil is homosexual, right? So Phil needs George to basically be his entire emotional lifeline to the world. He has nothing else. He's he's not going to be able to get married or have a boyfriend or get married to a man. However, when George is able to basically form a relationship with another person that isn't Phil, that's like ripping away the only person in Phil's life that he feels he has any emotional connection to or can have only any emotional connection to. He doesn't have any other options. Yeah, he's immediately jealous. That's why he begins his campaign. It makes perfect sense. I mean, that's why I like about the book. Everything makes sense, and it doesn't have to be specifically explained. I mean, there is there like there's obvious things where when George brings Rose home, Phil is waiting and it's freezing out because it's like winter and he purposely doesn't light a fire. None of the lights are on except his like little reading light. And he doesn't like get out of his chair to say hi to Rose. He immediately starts with the, you know, the cold front and the abuse. And it's just like, oh, this is out of nowhere. It's like, oh, wait, no, this was established. He was very close to George, and now he realizes that he's not going to have his brother there for him for, like, what you said, that emotional support, that acceptance that George gives him. Like, George is the rock for Phil, and now that his rock is being taken away from him, Phil has to go haywire. Okay, so Uh, let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question before we before we say goodbye on this, okay? This book was really a hidden gem for a long time. Um even after uh, even after Brokeback Mountain came out and was a big success uh, in terms of the films, this book still sort of uh, languished in obscurity. Um, now they're reselling the book. They've got Benedict Cumberbatch's face like literally on the book. Like you mm. know, if you go to the airport to pick up a magazine and you see the book section, you'll see the Netflix version of this of this republished book. I assume this book is going to get some press in the near future from the literati. Uh, and my question to you is, how much do you think, A, based on the political climate of America right now, the book, the literati are going to focus on Phil's repressed homosexuality as the central core of the book? And I think you've already sort of uh, talked about this anyway, but I want to make it crystal clear. And B, if they talk about it a bunch, which I think would be both our answers, is it a mistake? A, to answer, yes, absolutely. In this modern climate 
of like where you, even you mentioned it, toxic masculinity. That's a phrase that had popped into my head when I was reading the book. Like Phil is your, you know, poster boy for toxic masculinity. And the movie is not subtle at all. Sam, I hated that. The end scene <laughs> where the movie changes the end. Like you don't actually watch uh, Phil and Peter as they finish the rope. And here's like the right. big, the biggest indicator that, yeah, Phil might you know be a sexual predator is that mm-hmm. in the book, they, Phil finishes the rope in Peter's bedroom. So yeah. if there's anything that happened in there, they don't mention it. It's the Casablanca cut to the clock scene, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, but in the movie, they're together. Peter's working on the rope. It's a lot of close-ups on his hips. And eventually, uh, Peter physically seduces uh, Phil. By like rolling a right. cigarette with the, and like, with the cigarette, yeah, and letting and feeding Phil smoke it to him, like, yeah, and the way he's holding the cigarette, it's just yeah. like, oh it's my not god! So yeah, yeah, the book is going to get a revision. Everybody that's seen the movie and had read the book is unfortunately going to immediately latch onto it. And when I read the book, I was like, oh, this is great! I love the vagary of it. You know, mm-hmm. it, you know, is Phil planning on something? Is maybe there a redemption arc in this? You know, I don't believe that it's it's me purposely trying not to accept that, you know, Phil's like a homosexual yeah. or that's the plot point. It's just like it's there, but everybody's going to it's, emphasize it's it. Not the, it's not the sole point of the book, and there may be no sole point of the book. And when people focus on the macro political slash societal, they lose the personal and also the more sophisticated subtleties of art and like what it's trying to say. If you just say, this is what happens to people in hostile climates, you know, against who they are, they turn like it, it's a very like sophomoric, like one note take to have. Which I think is also going to drive the book sales up. Um, and, oh, yeah. You know, well, hopefully, Sam, you, hopefully you, do well for his estate. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think you said it perfectly. It's going to be summed up in a one note thing. You know what? I, mm-hmm. I believe, Sam, I believe you. If this book becomes successful, we are going to see some memes. <laughs> There's going to be well, like, a, I don't know if he's going to be but like uh, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch's Phil is going to be memed on. And if that happens, right. well, hopefully then I for totally people do. who, uh, Hopefully for people who are looking for more like in-depth, like nuanced analysis, they can come to this podcast, the Full Dusty Jacket podcast, uh, to hear that. Because uh, I think our analysis of it is less one note and more in-depth into the literature itself. Uh, Sean, this was a great one. I'm glad we did this book. I'm glad I recommended it. Uh, this was really my kind of book, just like Hard Rain Falling was, even though Hard Rain Falling was your recommendation, mm-hmm. versus Thomas Pynchon, which is definitely not my kind of book, <laughs> even though I admire its craft. Um that might be for too much of the uh, the expert literati groups for which I'm not a part of. So, Sean, you want to tell people what we're doing next week? Yeah, next week we're going to be a little bit more straightforward. We're going to look at the classic crime noir novel, The Maltese Falcon. I'm excited about finally getting into that that kind of genre. What about you, Sam? I'm excited, too, and I'm also probably... Actually, you know what? I'm not going to watch the movie. I'm just going to read the book this time. I'm going to do what you say. I'm going to read the book first. I'm not even going to touch the movie. Uh, Sean, this was great. Until next time. All right, everybody. We'll see you next time. So long. Uh, uh,